Hey friends, this is Holly Bame Lytle, and you're listening to Isaac's Autism in the Wild podcast, where we focus on topics related to raising loved ones touched by autism and its impact on relationships and family. I'll be sharing some of my personal parenting experiences, raising my son Isaac, who passed away in 2007, as well as an entirely different parenting experience as I now raise my son Caleb, who never ceases to blow my mind with his beautiful autism perspectives. So grab a drink and join me as I interview this week's panel of exceptional autism parents. Okay, so I am welcome today with a group of parents, and the topic that we're discussing is the stages of grief. And I think probably most people think of stages of grief when you're talking about a loss, but um, I think that there is a resounding agreement that there is definitely a, um, you know, processing of grief when you have, when you receive the diagnosis that your child is on the autism spectrum. So we're going to talk a little bit about what that looks like. And um, also with that, we have two dads joining us. And um, it's been interesting when we've been talking about this conversation, the topic off of um, recording just in terms of how men and women process grief different. Um, and we were kind of joking even early on that, you know, we were discussing even the seven stages of grief and, and the dad seemed to be surprised that there's not like that there's so many, um, which is, is interesting because I think that kind of goes along with the topic. So I guess the first question is, um, is it truly mirroring of, you know, is the grief process similar or mirroring of physical grief? So those of us, I know, Bonnie, you've lost both of your parents um, and then you have two children with autism. Is there similarities in terms of grieving the physical loss of a person? And then, of course, when your, your children get diagnosed with autism. Definitely. Um, and I, it, it's hard for me to share my feeling because I don't want to take away from anybody who has lost anybody. But I have often um, considered it when I, when I had to process everything as... Um, it was like my child had died. And when you say that, you don't want to like offend anybody, but it, it felt like that's, that's what happened. I, I watched, you know, this child go away and it felt like I was given back, uh, given a child that wasn't mine anymore. And uh, the face looked the same, but nothing was the same. And how am I going to connect with this child? How am I going to, um, I, I, I know everybody's journey is different. Um, I have two on the spectrum. And originally they were both very severe. And so um, I, that's also a difference, I know, um, to the point where um, my one son, they said he would never walk again, talk, eat on his own. Uh, he just rocked in a corner. Um, and I, I didn't know who that was, who, who was that child, you know. And, and he was uh, very typically uh, developed before that. He talked, he walked, he, uh, you know, knew baby sign, all that. Um, so it, I would say, um, yeah, it was literally me trying to figure out how did I lose the, these children and, uh, you know, the difference is obviously from a physical loss, you, you know, you, you don't obviously get them back, but, um, it, you, it's a weird feeling having a memory of who that child was before and who you've been given now. Yeah. No. And to give you some reassurance, um, I have had. I have the experience of grieving my child after the autism diagnosis, and then because of circumstances, I then actually had to grieve his physical loss because he passed away when he was four. And I will tell you that the grief process is almost the exact same. Um, because one of the things that you're talking about is, you know, when he got diagnosed with autism, um, you know, you, you talk about the, the stages of grief, which is shock, denial, anger, bargaining, depression. Testing was one where I was like, what is that one? But it's the seeking out um, realistic solutions. And again, oh, doesn't that speak almost perfectly to the, you know, when you were talking about an autism diagnosis and then of course acceptance. And I will tell you that um, all of those things applied when Isaac was diagnosed and they equally applied in the, in pain um, when he physically died because again, you know, just I, when he was diagnosed with autism, it's the, how, what am I, what does my future look like? How do I go on from here? And what is that going to look like? Because now I was grieving some of those things that in my head, he's never going to do. And then of course, when he physically passed away, it was like, I couldn't imagine my life now that he's gone. 
And what is my life going to look like? I, I don't know how to live. I don't know what my new normal is going to look like. So there is a lot of similarities. And so it's not offensive at all. I will tell you, grief process is different. You know, when my dad died, um, the, you know, the grief process and just kind of, you know, how maybe how fast you move around those stages of grief was different when my dad died versus when my child died. It was so much more debilitating um, with, you know, having lost my son, but, um, you know, don't, it, it's it, to me, you know, and having had experience both, even with the same child, don't feel like you're minimizing that at all because, um, they are all there. Um, and I totally agree. Like I look at pictures. I don't know if you guys do this. This will be interesting, but I look at pictures of, um, our family and Isaac and it's my before autism pictures. And then the after autism pictures and, um, you know, the after autism pictures, the resent and everything. Um, it's like, that's how I categorize that, that time that I had with my son is before autism, after autism. And then there's the pictures after he physically died, where it's like this whole, you know, I had this whole three periods of time. And then you have Caleb who then got diagnosed with autism. And I will tell you the grief process um, was different. And I actually equate that to when Caleb got diagnosed with autism, I feel like that experience was different. And I really equate it to having better supports in place. You know, my autism tribe, if you will, um, I wasn't as scared. And also I had a frame of reference for what to expect because I had gone through that, um, kind of that grief phase, you know, that grief processing time with Isaac that, um, I wasn't so scared. Um, of the unknown and what is our life going to look like because I had a place of reference. Um, but you know, so don't feel like, you know, you're minimizing anything because there is a lot of correlation, which is part of the reason why we decided to talk about this. Did you find that you were more sad the second time around because it was the second time around than you were with the first diagnosis? Um, so with my second child, when Caleb was diagnosed with autism, I feel like I jumped right into anger. Do you know what I'm saying? So the order of how I processed that, I went immediately into, I was just furious. I was so angry, angry. In fact, I, for, I don't even remember doing this, but I wrote a letter. It was like a letter to God, like you effing asshole. Like, I hate you. You know what I mean? Because, you know, I had, I had my son, Isaac, and then he was taken to, from me in the terms of autism and this cloud that we had to fight through every dang day. And then you physically took my child away and bless me with another child. And now you're telling me, because again, too early on, you don't know what, what it's going to look like. Mm -hmm. And I just jumped straight into anger and I was there for a very long time. Whereas with Isaac, I, you know, like you, I, I you know, when I go through and I look and I, it's like, oh yeah, I remember shock and then the denial and then a little bit of the anger, but then it goes back into, you know, bargaining. And then I'm looking for answers. And then, you know, so I feel like, um, the order was much different where I was in anger with Caleb um, and depression for a really long time. But again, I feel like it was lessened um, because I had a better tribe and I knew more people then um, that helped me. It's not that they helped me. I guess it was just that you could um, lean on them a little bit emotionally. And I, I knew there were safe people that I could share those feelings with and people wouldn't shoot me down or have like, you know, what are you talking about? Like your kid didn't die. Okay. So, you know what I mean? There's just people that are safe to talk about it with. But you also had more information. You had. Well, but you do have you more information. About it, while you can be pissed about it, you kind of knew what it could look like. You do have more information, but when they're little, um, because I will tell you, I started seeing things as early as three months mm -hmm. because I was more hyper tuned to the fact that right. I believe that there were differences, but you still don't know. Is this going to be a severe child with autism? Right. Is this right. going to be a high functioning autism, you know, child with autism? So you still have the fear of the unknown, but you have, you can hit the ground running yes. faster. Exactly. Whereas before it, it, I struggled to have to find answers. Yeah. Um, so, but again, when you're talking about stages of grief, anger and depression, oh man, I held on to those for a very long time. I was not a pleasant person to be around. So and I think when I, I do understand you a little bit, because like with Evan, you know, I allowed myself about like two weeks and then I'm like, mm, you don't have to be sad about this anymore. Do what you need to do. And then with Jackson, I get it because it, and I 
was autism, you're right, I had less support actually because people actually, Evan's autism was so severe that everybody just jumped ship. So it was like, boom, left. Yeah. And I was, I was so angry because I was like, and then uh, initially because Jackson's did um, seem as bad as Evan's, it was like, oh my gosh, like how are we going to literally get through this with two kids that are so low functioning that, um, and I get it because I felt I was angry for a long time yeah. and bitter, and then you don't even realize that like some of the reason why you um, aren't around people is, I, I don't know if you did this, but if there was, if you had friends that had kids that were the same age, oh. and you went to something, and you didn't want to feel that way, but you're like, you know, oh, my kid doesn't do that, or oh, my, you know, and you're just, oh, like, yes. you just find yourself, like, depressed about things, but you're trying to be happy about the little things that they're doing, but you're just, you know, you're in this spot in your mind where you're like, oh, my gosh. I was so bitter. I would walk down the street, and I would see these little families of four, and I'd be like, oh, you people have no clue. <laughs> just go live your happy lives, yeah. because... You know, with your perfect children and your perfect life. I mean, this is, you know, when Isaac was diagnosed and I was still in that grief process. And I will tell you, after Isaac died, I was back to that bitter person where I'm looking at these little families of four thinking, well, aren't you special? You know, like you have no idea what a gift you have. And, you know, anyway, so I was not a pleasant person, I'll admit. So how often does it come off to you like this? And I don't know, this is a very fluid situation, these stages. I mean, I could throw myself back into any stages at any point how often does it come off to you like this oh you guys are such amazing parents how the hell do you know i know know? what you're really saying i'm sorry you're not saying this but how how it comes off sometimes is thank god it's you and not me oh yes and so because the backhanded compliments is what i call those and and they're not they're really not they come from a good place but how do you know when today i chose to let her sit on her ipad all day and completely Of grief through 
Oh, it's totally fluid. I mean, that's a perfect word. Yeah, you're, that's a perfect word for it because um, uh, our son Cameron, who is twelve, um, I have found that um, as he's gotten older and some of those benchmarks are, you know, looming, or we we get to some sort of benchmark, like we just transitioned to middle school, and we have found that 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 is a a new situation for us that now I have to, you know, I'm grieving the process of, he's not transitioning like his peers. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, when we get to high school, it's going to be kind of the same thing when he gets to be 16 and probably not get a driver's license. Like when you say that these stages, especially for, um, you know, this autism journey are fluid, it's like, just a swirling cauldron of any one of those can come up at any time for me. Like um, when you uh, see those parents who their kids are in, you know, regular sports and this, that, and the other thing. And Cameron's our only, like this is my one and only um, having a child experience. Like this is all I'm ever going to know. I'm not going to experience any other um quote unquote normal uh, parenting situation. And so I find sometimes when, when certain situations or benchmarks or whatever come up that I can spiral right back into anger and go, why the flip is this my parenting experience? Why, why is this what I got? Are you, are you effing kidding me? It doesn't seem fair. Um, it doesn't seem fair. Um, you know, and but then again, I, I can spiral right around to acceptance and go, well, thank goodness this is my parenting experience. Because, you know, the one thing that I, the flip side to my grief is that um, because of, of Cameron, we've experienced his childhood for such a much longer amount of time. Like his, all, every benchmark that he meets is because it's taken us longer to get there. We've experienced it longer. Um, and so we, we see, he doesn't grow up so fast. Yes. We get to still enjoy the magic of Christmas. We do. We get and, to you know what I mean? So we do get to hold on to some of those pieces a lot longer, yeah. which, you know, again, I, it, it's, it's beautiful. You know, yeah. just even excitement. Like my teenagers right now, you know, it's like, Hey, it's your birthday. And it's kind of like, yeah, I just want cash. Whereas, you know, with Caleb, it's like, we are still planning elaborate parties yeah. and it's like the month of celebration yeah. and you know what I mean? Of just like all, you know, and here's what I want and I want, you know, Chuck E. Cheese and I want, and it's like, wow, like, yes. you know, we're, we're, you know. But again, I can spiral through those, you know, stages on a daily basis. Oh yeah. Even just something as easy as like this morning. He's 12 years old. He probably could have stayed at home. A lot of 12-year-olds are staying at home for, you know, an hour or two. Yeah, not not going to happen, not leaving him home by himself. And so that's kind of frustrating. You know, and I'm still getting him babysitters when I want to go out and do a mom's night. Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, a lot of 12-year-olds can function without having to be Watched. Well, and we're at that stage where, you know, Caleb is at home and his younger sister, who's nine, is the babysitter. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that's just it. It's like last night I was a little choked up because we went um, to see the opening night of the Curious Incident yeah. of the Dog in the Nighttime. And literally I'm giving my nine-year-old daughter basically yeah. instructions of, you know, how to care for you know what I mean? And it's just kind of like, oh, so you're sad yeah. and you're angry that this is your situation and you're, yeah. So. And she's happy as can be, you know, like little Miss Responsible. And she's got her key to the kitchen because, yes, we have to lock up the kitchen. You know right. what I mean? Yeah. You know, you know, I, here's the, and that's the thing is I'm just like, you know, and here's what the sad thing was. is She fell asleep before we got home. And I was like, oh, and she's like, oh, I failed. And it was like, you know, this little thing is yeah. just tired. And so, you know, fortunately, he was just on his, you know, like playstation but it's just one of these moments where well of course this little thing fell asleep it's past her bedtime yeah. so and caleb of course doesn't sleep like normal people so you know he's still up until yeah. it's like hey gotta go to bed you know what i mean and it's like oh this this is our life yes you know this is our life well and i think ever lots of times 
I go back into stage three from other people, other people's reaction to our family, other people's oh, reactions yeah. to, you know, the, I don't, I hate when I get the, Oh. And it's like, and then it makes me sad again. This is where you are, you guys are all better people than I am because I, you know, you know. and so it's. And you might get that from one of us, by the way. Well, yeah, but you, but I understand that you guys know what having one is like. Yeah, you know what the work is, what the work is, but um, it's, you know, different, different little things. You we know, stand like there that. in solidarity with you where somebody else is going, thank God it's you and not me. Right. And you just want to go. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And, in know, which case, Christine was just giving a nice gesture. Yeah. 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 Yes, yeah. those are that little fingers. fingers <laughs> and I think in the, in the stages, as if you get older, like you're saying, you know, when Evan was little and he was, you know, three, four, five years old, whatever, things weren't as obvious. Right. And you yes. could go out and it's cute little you know, Evan always has to hold my arm in a certain way and smell my face as we walk places, and it probably does look weird. He likes to play with my hair when he gets nervous. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Evan's almost as tall as me, and he's 10, and, you know, but his mind is like a three-year-old. And so we go places, and he sits on my lap, and I get these weird looks, and it's like, listen, have you ever known what it's like to have your child not want to touch you for the first six years of his life? Yeah. I mean, the day that he decided that I was okay, I mean, I could, I don't even want to go to it, I'll start crying. Like, he lets me hold his hand Mm -hmm. now, he lets, and I don't care, I will take it, and I enjoy every minute of it. He wants to sit on my lap, I don't care if he's 50, you know, because that's the stage where he's at. That's, you know, and, and so it's those type of things lots of times it brings you back kind of into that grief when you get a look or you get a you know we get a lot of a sad looks is what it is and that's what's hard is when you go out in public you get the <laughs> and you're just it it's not helpful i'd rather somebody just look and smile you know don't, don't look at us <laughs> they probably we, are looking and probably feeling jealous actually i have to be honest because you know i teased my high school son who's neurotypical remember the when you used to want to sit next to me and watch TV and that, you know, we would hold hands when we would go places and he's just like, Ooh, mom, really? And it's kind of like, so, you know, um, but I totally know exactly what you mean. Like Caleb still at 11 holds my hand when we walk in the store because, you know, that's just, again, kind of pre-programmed, but still, again, he is, you know, developmentally delayed in the Mm -hmm. sense that he's still mentally at that point where I hold my mom's hand. Um, so whereas what, show me another 11 year old kid that's, um, going to be like holding mom's hand in a public place, you know? So I think Christine is, so I'm like you, there's milestones, you know, that that we're missing. Right. So because of chronological age, I feel like, like with that's when it hits me, it's not like the diagnosis to me didn't mean anything. It meant, okay, so now what so now i dig into research right so that's maybe that's part of denial or testing or whatever this i don't i gotta be honest with you um i don't know if i can if capable of feeling all seven of those things I mean, I, and that's part of it too i mean part of it is the fact that i seal myself off and maybe that's part of because i have to detach myself during with the job that i have which um, is just so people have a frame of so I'm, I'm a firefighter and um you know i've seen a lot of bad things and sometimes you have to be able to operate without operating emotionally it doesn't mean it doesn't bother me. and i'll tell you right now it does bother me now that i'm getting the stuff you know i'm digging holes and, and putting bones in and throwing them back over and i think that there's times when i had a nerve and for no reason it's like this little thing turns into this big thing right so but i would say that i with cooper it, it's like every time well god he's never going to do this and it kind of sinks in and you think well sh- like sports you know, my family's really athletic. His brother's athletic and, and Cooper's bigger than his brother. So, you know, you'd be like, you know, God, he could have been really something. You think about that and you're like, oh, that kind of sucks because he really is pretty athletic. But it's just one of those things where you realize that, you know, there's times when, you know, he just gets, he's going to miss out on a lot. But, you know, look at it like this. He's also doing things and experiencing things that other kids can't, right, in a different way. And I don't, I'd like to know what the perspective is that he has because, when he's happy, man, he's happy. I mean, he's he's a kid that walks around and smiles all the time, right? So it would be un, it would be really cool to understand what that looks like because maybe we're filling that hole with something else. You know, he's not just missing out and never going to do some things, but maybe he's filling that hole with something else. I hope that's the case. You know, I guess that's – and then maybe that's my own 
bargaining. Yeah, reasoning. absolutely. Yeah. Again, absolutely, I'm trying you're not to. putting words to these feelings. Well, that's just it. I mean, I don't, yeah. and I, I'll tell you right now, I've not, for a long period of my life, I didn't allow myself to have feelings. Most of it was just anger. Responses were anger. And that was where mm -hmm. it stopped. I'd get angry and I'd deal with it and that was it. So. Yeah. Well, then this begs the question because, you know, we definitely would, none of us would make the argument that the stages of grief are different between women and men. Again, we were laughing earlier about what the guys were sitting here looking at this list saying, wait, are those, what? I had no idea there was that many. Um, whereas women, I think are like, really, there's only seven because I feel like there's so many more emotions in there that I have been feeling when it comes to this processing system. So, you know, being a person that's divorced, I will tell you that part of the reason why we are divorced is um, more product of having physically lost Isaac um, because, you know, the stages of grief and the places that we were at, you know, I how I channeled my grief after Isaac died is I started the Isaac Foundation and I put a lot of energy in it and in some, and I am not so obtuse to not recognize that um, I have substituted the loss of my child with a foundation that um, in so many capacities is my child. Um, so I'm so passionate about what we do and all of your guys' children really in, in a very, you know, probably, uh, maybe unhealthy way have become, have replaced my son. Um, whereas for my ex-husband, um, the daily reminder and the constant um, reinforcement of the fact that he is gone and we don't have him and we have to rehash this every single day was more than he could handle. Um, now, it's interesting because, you know, he would say we have to get we have to put this away and we can't expose the children to this because if it is hard for me, it's got to be, you know, detrimentally affecting our children. So then, you know, you start talking to counselors and it's like, okay, you know, because if this is a real probability that we're damaging the children, because especially for the older ones where they had a relationship with Isaac, um, just for perspective, two of my children um, were born after Isaac passed away. Two of my, um, you know, Tyler, my um, son, Tyler, with my ex-husband, Reed, um, he had a relationship with Isaac and then Reed had um, a son from his first marriage that had a relationship with Isaac. And so, you know, the debate is, is this detrimentally effective to, you know, affecting the children? Because is this just a constant reminder of the fact that they lost their brother? Um, and the answer is for the kids, um, you know, Tyler at the thought of not having the Isaac foundation was just overwhelming. Like, how could you take this away? You can't give this and have somebody else take this from us. Um, because he also, like me, was associating this. This is the only thing I have my brother that's left. Um, so his, you know, like, no, you can't take this away is definitely there. It's interesting because the two younger kids, having never met their brother whatsoever, um, they almost feel like Isaac Foundation is their brother as well because they never met this kid. But they feel like they have a relationship with this young man that they never met by virtue of the fact that Isaac Foundation is very much there. And it's that exposure and that remembrance. But with that being said, you know, our marriage was negatively impacted by the fact that we grieved differently and what I needed, like very much contradicted and interfered with his ability to process and handle grief. So the question I have is that, you know, this is my experience. Um, and I will tell you when we, when you talk about then, um, you know, if you were just talking about Isaac and after the diagnosis, how we were handling it was much different, you know, and he will admit I was the head in the sand. Like I just needed you to handle it all um, because I was not in a place where I could deal with it. Um, I just, you know, wanted to pretend, you know, he'd come home, he'd be the fun dad, you know, I'm going to play in rough house and this, that, and the other. And then we put the kids to bed, I go to work. And then what happens while I'm gone? It's like, really, I don't, you know, it's like, I want to hear about it, but like, it's just hard for me. And, um, so, and even after I, you know, Caleb has been diagnosed, it's like, you know, he just trusts me to be able to handle a lot of that. And, you know, again, so I can tell you still the way we cope and how we handle autism is vastly different when you're talking about those stages. Um, but again, I'm coming from the perspective, I'm the, you know, like resident divorce person here. Um, so my question is, does grief and how you processing that, we know that divorce is very prevalent when you're talking about having not just autism, but, you know, any disability, you know, is it really grief and how we're processing it or is it other factors? Um, I can just share a recent experience, which is, I think, <clears throat> in generalizing for males, we're taskmasters. I want to check it off the list, check it off the list so I can move on. And John's um, shaking his head over here. Yeah. So. And 
There is no way you can check it off the list and complete this task and move on. And yet that's how I'm wired. How am I processing this? And just recently, shout out to you, Meg. Have I allowed for um, her to, um, I've, I haven't been very good at allowing her to process the way she wants to process. I want her the way to process the way I want to process. And so, I don't know, the light shone on recently, and maybe it just caught me on the right day, but I've been trying to live in it ever since, whereas she called with a very similar conversation that we always have, and I've been just very poor at handling it, just, can we please move on from this conversation? And I realized that was for my own convenience, because I don't want to live in this right now. Do I have to live in this again? Do I have to have this discussion again? Because I, quite frankly, and ready to move on from all this. And instead, said, you know what? And this doesn't make me great. This just somehow shined into my life. There's no reason you shouldn't feel insane today. That's what I told her. And look at all the crap you have to deal with. And I'm on the road a lot, and you're in the middle of it all the time. And quite frankly, if you're not insane, then I, I would question your sanity. <laughs> because, you know, look at what you're dealing with. You have a... Uh, a child with autism that puts you through all of these, uh, you know, all of various emotions and various scenarios and things that you have to challenge. Conversely, you have a neurotypical child that we would love to be nurturing, but quite frankly, preys on her sister. And how could she not? Because she was born after her sister with a desperate need to have a connection with her sister and a sister that has no interest in having a connection. So what has she done? She's turned it into anger that she unleashes on you and me and the rest, but you're there acutely in the battle every day. How could you not feel anything other than what you're feeling right now? So you need to allow yourself to feel insane, to continue to go insane until, you know, you decide to move on to something else. Um, and because what else is there? Yeah. Quite frankly, um, I really hope, and if this is evolution, of a guy who you know is still has the taskmaster taskmaster mentality into something that I guess I can expand upon my emotional range um, to at least allow because you know that that would be the breakdown of a marriage you know I can't allow you to sit in the emotion you need to change them for my convenience otherwise this isn't going to work well that's that's a formula for a pretty good marriage there um, so. How am I going to continue to engage in this battle unless I somehow increase my emotional capacity? I don't know how else to do it. So, but is it fair then that, because I guess that's where I, again, when, you know, grief process, it's like I, you know, to what you're saying, I'm wanting him to process this the same way I am, the same order, the same rate. And I think it's fantastic that you get to that perspective where you're willing to you know, like, Hey, I'm going to have to circle back to this, but will that be a detriment to you? Like over time, is that going to, will it make you grow or is it going to end up like negatively impacting you? Because you're going to have to be forced into places where just like it becomes complicated, you know? Oh, I check back with me in two years. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to make a little calendar reminder. Check with David. I will ever be committed or committed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's so true. Yeah. Well, I, 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 uh, I know I've mentioned this in another podcast, but, you know, when we left the place after uh, Evan got diagnosed, you know, she taught us about how strong our marriage was and possibly going to marriage counseling because 80% of marriages fail when you have a child that's disabled. And I'm like, okay, crap, we have a child's autism and we're getting divorced. So this is awesome. And then when we left with Jackson, uh, it went up to 90%. So there's not a lot of room in that 10%, you know, you realize real quick. And I'm like, there's no way. Our marriage is so strong. But there's so much that goes into, you know, especially when you have two, um, lots of times it's okay. Which kid do you have today? Which kid do I have today? Well, there's not a lot of relationship happening there. And so, um, you know, and then there's grief, you know, grief that you, that you go through during that too. And it's just, um, it's so hard. And Jason's wired a lot. I mean, obviously most guys are, you know, he wants to fix it. And that's been his biggest grief is 
his way is trying to get over it is um I couldn't I couldn't fix it with Evan and now this happened again. Like how does I'm supposed to be the one who protects the family and how did this happen twice? And so I think that there's uh, you know, where me I live in autism twenty four seven and I want to live in autism twenty four seven. Because you're better at it, right? I didn't want to bring that up. <laughs> but yes, I'm pretty amazing. <laughs> One of the best. One of the best. I mean, that's a whole other podcast. But, um, but you know, and he, do, you know, he, 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 you know, he's very attentive when it's a situation that allows for it. But you know, he likes to go to work. You know, get it off his mind, and I'll be like texting him stuff. You know, and he's like, you know, he doesn't want to live in it all the time. And I, it was hard for me to realize forever. It was kind of like, well, that's him not caring. He doesn't care. Well, no, he he deals with things differently, and it. It lasts on him longer, so he needs those breaks where I'm just like, you know, I have to live in the autism moment all the time. I'm always thinking about it. How can I make things better for the boys? How can we do this, that, and the other? And, you know, I think that's the big thing that people need to know is everybody's grief is so different. And uh, especially when you live in the same house, that's hard when your grief's different. I think that's probably one of the... Your mic's not on. Just give me one second. Okay, that works. Okay, go ahead. I think that might be one of the you know, things that you take away from this conversation is while men may not go through all the stages, they kind of really do. They just might not label it that way. I mean, the things that I hear um, you all saying, and, and then just in my experience with my husband, is he really did go through all the stages. He just did it differently. Um, and we, and we were definitely not ever in the same stage at the same time. And that had to be okay. I think he stayed in denial way longer than I did. Um, but I'm also a taskmaster. And so denial wasn't really, a, I mean, it was a, it was a blip. It was like, okay, we have this diagnosis, accept it. Now what? Um, I probably stayed in what the testing one, the bargaining one, the yeah, I stayed, I think, in those later stages. Um, and I might actually still be there. Um, shock wasn't a big deal for me because I'm an educator, and so as soon as those telltale signs came up, I was like, okay, um. Denial, yeah, didn't stay there very long. The anger one, I definitely circle back around to because every time we come up against a new milestone or something that he should be doing. Um, bargaining, I don't know. I don't know if I have anything to bargain with. This is my kid, my one and only, and this is what we get. So I, I don't feel like I have a lot of bargaining. But the, the testing, the acceptance, those are a revolving door for me. I'm constantly trying to um, find solutions to every new issue that comes up. Um, but I, I, do, I can say that I think um, my husband denies a lot. Like he, he may actually defer to me in terms of the, the testing stage, the finding the solutions, the whatever, because again, like all of us have said here, I'm in it 100% of the time. Like I, I rarely take a break from it. Um, I was even dreaming of it last night. I yeah. have to be honest. Like I woke up this morning yeah. thinking, oh, I'm so glad. Like in my head, I was, you know, like rationalizing some sort of like potential therapy. And I literally woke up thinking, my God, you're sleeping yeah, and, and planning. Like how yeah. is this even, yeah. you know, you so you're no wonder I wake up and I feel exhausted. Yeah. But literally I had that moment where it's like, oh, yeah. you know, I'm planning therapies in my sleep. Fantastic. Well, and I think, I think that's important, um, an impo important distinction. My husband has the ability to leave it. Mm -hmm. His job takes him away from home and it always has. Yeah. Um, he, he's prior military, so he would deploy and he would leave. And, um, now in his current job, he's, he's gone half the month. And so I can, I can only imagine how he has to process when he has to step back into it. It's almost like 
for whatever reason, Cameron's been obsessed with The Wizard of Oz. And that's the only thing that I can think of is what it must be like for my husband is he lands in Oz or the land of autism every time he comes home after being gone for a week or two. And that he has to constantly reintegrate himself and Play you know, catch play catch up and understand what's going on. And so his swirl of these grief stages must happen to him on a much more regular basis and in a much more shocking way than it does for me because I live in it all the time. I never leave the land of Oz. And so um, I we've just had to figure out how to make that okay. Like I can't. Not that I don't, but I can't get mad at him when he doesn't respond the way I do because he's he's just landed in Oz. Like he's still going to be a little shocked, um, a little bit denial, maybe a little bit angry, and I have to be okay with that because um, we just our experiences are very different. I can uh, I can reaffirm that for you being on the road a lot and uh, it was actually a pretty prominent rock star who said that uh, you know when he goes on the road it's like he just completely loses familiarity with family life and what it's even about when he comes back home and re-engages in family he completely loses sight of what it's like to even be in a band and be on the road again and it's the same type of thing too I mean like when people text me on the weekend with work stuff I'm like I you're talking about and I, I manage people and I'm like you're talking to the wrong person right now I've completely disengaged from that portion of my life because I have to completely abandon that for the time being until I until Monday hits and Monday takes about a half day adjustment to get back into work mode because I've just gone through you know insanity bill uh, which is going to be a new Disney theme park so I think the overall message is that we are um, all rock stars we're all rock stars well it's interesting that you say that because um John, you said it too. You compartmentalize. Mm-hmm. And I I think, and, and I don't want this to sound sexist or offend anybody, but I think, you know, women are typically the primary caregivers. And so we live in it 100%. Men are typically the ones who are out there doing what they're doing and they have to compartmentalize. Um, and do work, life, and then home life. And so it's like a muscle. Muscles that you use often become the strongest muscles. And so my husband's ability to compartmentalize is super strong. My ability to compartmentalize? No. I carry this all day long, every day. I sleep, I dream it, I whatever. And I can get to the place where I get really frustrated with my husband that he is able to just forget and compartmentalize. And I just had this epiphany. It's like, well, duh, he has to do that. Like he can't not do that. Um, Otherwise he wouldn't be able to do his work life well. And then he wouldn't be able to do his home life well if he didn't compartmentalize. And so I think I need to give him a little bit more grace in terms of his compartmentalizing, like not dealing with our autism life when he's on the road because, well, he just, he can't. And he shouldn't have to because he's got to do work. Um, it was a little bit of... See, even where, yeah, this is almost like practically counseling. Here right? Like, yeah. like, you know, you can thank me later. So it's fine. Though. How much is it cost us? I, there, right? I do think though that your your uh, comment to your wife Meg about the fact that yeah you're feeling you know overwhelmed or you know acknowledging the fact that a little crazy's going on, it's okay, right? Yeah. And I think that's cool. That's that's really that's very very cool. I like that. Yeah. That's not my good days, John. Well, <laughs> at least you have good days. <laughs> So I think we covered this one a little bit, but, um, and we've kind of been talking about this little by little, things that have helped us process, like what are things that we know of that have helped us to be able to um, come to terms with some of these stages of grief? Um, You know, I think, you know, Bonnie and I have kind of slightly different experiences in that we've had two children with autism and, um, you know what I mean? Like the, for, I will, I definitely feel like there's, um, you know, 
much stronger. Um, I don't know if it's stronger or it's just that more, uh, my memory is so acute of the stages of grief and how I mourned when Isaac was diagnosed with autism versus again, I have very acute memories with Caleb, but I remember like the anger and depression so much stronger with Caleb. Whereas I don't really remember those specific phases of, um, I do remember being depressed and, um, you know, some denial with, um, with Isaac, but I just remember mostly just like grieving this whole life. I thought I had lost, you know what I mean? And just, I guess that's denial. Um, but I feel like it's like that book, the pictures of the before autism. And this is, you know, like these are the pictures of the after. Um, but do you recall, or do you have anything that you specifically remember that, um, helped you or things that, you know, when you remembered, um, or when you get to a certain place and you look back, you know, hindsight being 2020 information, information, Information has been absolutely the key for me um, getting through this, the stages of grief. The more information that I had, whether that was when we initially got his diagnosis, what, what, did this, what was this going to mean? What, what, what was this going to make our life look like? You know, and when you talk about grieving the life that you thought you were going to have and you do grieve that, the more information that I got in terms of, okay, well, what can we recover? You know, what kind of recovery can we, can we have from, from this, from the shock of this, from the diagnosis, from whatever, the more information that I got, um, that helped me then process through the stages. And I find that that happens with every single milestones. And I'll, I'll say this in terms of when we first moved to Spokane or moved back to Spokane, cause I'm from here, but we were away for 10 years um, while my husband was in the military. And when I came back to Spokane and I didn't know the resources and I didn't know the groups that I could be involved in. And I didn't know the opportunities that existed for my child with autism in this, um, uh, city. When I finally got that information, again, we just like grieving sports, grieving my child, not, you know, being in a neurotypical sports thing. And we got hooked up with the Isaac foundation and we found out that there are soccer groups and there are basketball groups and there is a hockey group. And there is all these kinds of things that in that information alone and then the fact that we got involved with all of that i mean we now have our son in sports my husband can be a, a hockey coach to our son which was one of my husband's dreams um having that information um knowing that there's mom's nights you know that that I can go and talk to other moms who live my life when my other friends who don't have a child um, with a disability and who can't possibly understand what my life is like, having the information that there's mom sites and I can go there and I can share this stuff has absolutely been um, the, the best thing. It helps me cycle through the stages. I think you uh, reinforced <clears throat> information. I think tagged along with information is community. Uh, for anybody listening out there who thinks they're going through this alone, um, first of all, that's a very um, valid thought initially, but you're, you're not. Um, the community, because, you know, parents are going to gravitate towards community with their kids regardless of what it looks like. Cheerleading, sports, academics, ours looks so much different. And um, especially when Morgan found her, and I say this in the most glowing and affectionate terms, pack of mis misfit kids at her school and yeah. just the misfit bunch that just gravitated towards each other and the amazing um, relationships that have come from that. I mean, so much so that like, there's a language that we can speak to each other that nobody else can speak to. I mean, when we posted Morgan's picture of her going to a one week camp on Facebook, cause you know, we love to live our Facebook likes and get the likes and everything. But mm -hmm. The, you know, some parents would chime in, that's great. It's like, yeah, I know you think it's great. You have no idea how great it is. And right? the parents that chime in and like know exactly how great it is that she was able to go away to a camp by herself for a week, just uh, off the charts. And I mean, so much so that like we were over at another friend's house, um, one of the misfit families, and they have some, they have a child on the spectrum, but they also have a child with cerebral palsy. And of course her issues are more acute. And we were over there 
and uh, they were helping me get uh, the girls' hair ready for a dance because Meg was away, so I can't possibly do hair. And so <laughs> uh, the child with cerebral palsy was reacting to something she was seeing on a screen, and she was reacting in a fashion that was very excited and very loud. And Morgan says, that's kind of funny and a little bit annoying. I mean, because she has no filter. And everyone started laughing. Now, in, in the presence of other parents, if you said their child was annoying, what reaction would you get? But in this community, yes. they all get it. And yes. they all get that Morgan's going to react in an unfiltered fashion. Yes. And so community is very much tagged along with the information. Yeah. That's huge. And I think, like, for me, um, having two, I feel like... Um, I guess every day I'm in a different stage of grief because there might be, you know, something that um, is fine now with Evan, but there's something with, you know, Jackson. So I think that I will say that's a little bit harder is we're constantly um, in, in different stages of grief at all times. But it has, like you said, like realizing that there is resources out there and realizing that, um, you know, Things, it's not that you can't have the life that you, I always have told myself, it's not that I can't have the life that I thought I was going to have, it's just going to look different. And that's okay. And, um, you know, I remember Jason, he's a football guy, his boys are going to play football. That's not really ever going to be the boys' thing. Evan doesn't like to be touched. Um, Jackson can't regulate himself, so he would plow about a million kids over. Um, it's just not their thing. But I remember every day working at occupational therapy just so Evan could throw a football. And when he was finally like almost seven years old, I'm like, Jason, come outside. And the first time that he threw that football to Jason was like, like you said, you can't even understand unless you're, you know, you just can't. And it was like, see, these can still happen. It's just going to look different. It's going to be on a different time frame. Um, and you just have to try to remain in that uh, positive moment. So those when those big, big grief moments happen, no matter what stage you're in, just try to just try to remember the positives. And um, it sounds know. like for our autism journey, we need to add another. We need to add a final stage, that hopeful stage. Yeah. You know that we that we constantly have to. Well, we can you know spiral through denial and anger and bargaining that we really do need that hopeful that hopeful stage that you can kind of live there for a little while and you see really great things but again you're going to always come back because that hopeful is all also sometimes tinged with sadness but then also tinged with that elation of we've we've reached something like he's thrown a football that's oh my gosh that's so great so then you can be hopeful about well what else? What what else can we achieve? Where where else can we go? What else can we do? So, I feel like for our autism journey, we need to we need to add one more stage for us, and because we we will we will just continue to cycle through, but we need that one. That would have been a great place to end this, but of course I'm gonna you know add <laughs> darkness into your <laughs> so, oh, great. Now, now look, I, it's circling back to like compared this to loss but in a way it is a loss this is the, the the whole process to me was a loss as if somebody had died because in a, in a sense the child that i thought i had kind of died the dreams yes i mean in yeah. the reminders such as Having set aside a college fund, yeah, what yeah. is this thing sitting there? For? Yes. Yeah. Oh, gosh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah, that, we have that, every yeah. time is a constant reminder. But you know, it it certainly is a loss, and yet I wouldn't replace the child I have now. No, it's like a, it's a and it can be both. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad I could tinge your hope with a lot of sadness. <laughs> but but it, it is sad. In reality, well, it, but we always you always go back to. It's it's different not what do we say? It's different, not less. Yeah. It's definitely gonna be different. Right. I mean you still have and sometimes it is gonna feel less and you it have is. to remind yourself, you know, yeah. yeah. I mean But yeah. that's projecting your expectations on what the future was going to bring. Yes. That's so I'm, that's the yeah. hardest thing. I think that's where the acceptance comes in and you yes. go, you know what? That's not gonna happen. 
And I'm like you, brother. I mean, it's just one of those things where you want to plan for the future, but I'll tell you right now, you have to get to a point where you go, you know what? It's different, not less. Yeah. And move on with that thought in mind. And it's tough. Every day is different. Because we're the same thing. We had that five, you know, we we did that. The minute the camera was born, we did that 529 because we were like, woohoo, okay, college, let's plan for it. We were, we got it done. We did this and. Oh, yeah. We, and we I still have family that want to, every time, you know, it's Cameron's birthday, they're like, oh, well, we want to put into his college fund. And we're like, are you, are you, okay, I'm sorry. What, what, why are we doing this? You know, why, why, why do you want to do that? Let's, um, and yet we remain hopeful. Like maybe, maybe there's some way that he'll want to go to college and we can, we can use that. And me, I have to say, I think that I am, maybe I, because I've lost a child, I, how I handle life, maybe I'm more like a dude in this capacity, but like when I am planning, like, you know, I hope for the best, but I have a hard time getting my hopes up because I have had my hopes crushed so much. Like, you know, had a child, you know, I had fertility issues, so I had to try really hard to get Isaac. So I, maybe that's why I was really angry and I felt like I was robbed because here, you know, I worked so hard and it had been so, you know, we lost a lot, you know, and then we finally have a baby. Um, but because of that, um, I have a hard time and then having lost him, then I, you know, blessed with another child that I was never supposed to have again. And then Caleb has autism. And so I have a hard time, um, not looking too Far, for, far forward into the future because, again, I feel like I've been burned. You know, anytime I have a hope or a dream, um, it definitely, I feel like it gets stomped all over. So my coping mechanism is I um, plan for worst case scenarios. Um, and I hate that about myself. Um, so, you know, um, I got to be honest, I'm not planning for college for Caleb, but I have a special needs trust because, you know, should I get hit by a bus tomorrow, I want to make right. sure that I have you know, supports in place that are going to make it so that he can live as independently as possible. Do you know what I'm saying? Oh, so yeah. I hate that about myself um, because again, you know, not one penny of savings for college, which, you know, you know, he, you know, college for him would look different than other um, neurotypical people. But again, you know, maybe I'm a little more dudish in the, the um, you know, I'm, I'm putting like um, stop losses. Because we have all of these things. Okay. We have the special needs trust. We have the, we're like all contingencies, man. We're, yeah. I, and we'll see. And that's, but I only have the worst case scenario ones in place. Do you know what I'm saying? And I hate that, um, you know, about, you know, my processing and whatnot, but. That's that's what I was talking about earlier. The weight that we live with and how it was reinforced heightened a little bit by some of the progress she made because it's you just expect the worst case scenario in every you're going to have the worst reaction and I'm already braced for it and I don't even know I'm living with it anymore. It's just as I said in our house chaos is the new normal so i just expect chaos so when i see something other than that and even the shred of hope that it could be something other than that i don't even know what to do with it i know well when we were when we were moving our big thing was finding a house that had some land so we could build um we came to terms with the fact that emily will live with us forever and we're not That's sure contingency yes and we're not sure about jackson so we're like, okay, we'll build a, a two-bedroom house on the land, and mm-hmm. they can be independent, and this is this is all we were hoping for. And then we had somebody say, well, what if Evan will never be able to live out of your house? And we're going, okay, well, there's another stage of grief. Um, but then, you know, it's weird things that you have to think about that others don't. And we ended up really lucky. We found a house that um, has a two-bedroom apartment hooked to it and by the hallway. So it's really like, you know. And so you're still, like you said, very hopeful that one day he can have the independent skills to live over on that side. If he doesn't, who cares? He'll live with us forever. But um, we, we just have to think about a lot of things all the time, you know, that people don't realize and constantly have to go through our minds. So be nice to us. Yeah. <laughs> Think of us at Christmas. <laughs> All right. Did we cover everything, Bill? I'm sure we didn't. I'm I sure that we can continue to have. Well, and that's a beautiful thing about this podcast is that I feel like this is a topic where you get another group of parents in mm-hmm. the room and you kind of, you know, start dissecting things. Just you know, your epiphany of just being able to meet Meg where she was. It's kind of like, oh, man, it's like so great. 
So I think this is definitely going to be a topic that we're going to be um, picking up again with another group of parents. And I just, you know, we had this opportunity of having a mixed combination of dads and moms. And so I love having that, um, that dynamic because I think it definitely makes you have a higher awareness of kind of where everybody's at. And, you know, again, you know, hey, I got to check off something off of the box and, and so I think there's a lot of value in that. So thanks for joining me. Um, so um, be sure if you're listening to the podcast to check out the list of other podcast topics that we have with a variety of different parents. Um, and again, sometimes we talk about we have multiple um, podcasts related to the same topic because you're looking at a new population, a different population of parents. And um, so definitely look at the list of, on the library of other topics you can listen to. And that's it for now. If you want to be notified of our next podcast release, be sure to hit subscribe. And just remember, we're all in this together. So find your tribe and hold them tight.